Hello everybody, welcome to History Inc. I am Joe, as always. Today, we're going to be talking about fascism in America, the plot to overthrow a president, the attempts to install a military dictatorship uh, in the White House under the leadership of Major General Smedley Butler. Now, the story is quite vague, as the only reason we know about it is through Smedley Butler's 1934 testimony to a precursor to the House on American Activities uh, Committee in 1934, as I said. So it's kind of just based on his word. Um, but, you know, there's been a lot of speculation recently that it could have been something that actually was going on. It is called the business plot otherwise known as the White House Coup or the Wall Street Push, which are, in my opinion, much better names than the business plot, and if it had a better name that was more commonly used, people would probably learn a little more about it. So I'm excited to get into this episode today. Uh, really quickly, I wanted to let you guys know what I have coming in the future before we get into the episode. So I started my Gettysburg um, little series. I'm really excited about that. Gettysburg has been a story I've been wanting to tell for so long and to the point as I mentioned in that episode I've been giving tours there it's just it's a story that I love to tell and that I think I know a lot about well the first episode I kind of tried to brush through the campaign because people want to hear about the battle more than the campaign so I did my best to represent my favorite parts of the campaign so there's that but also I'll be having a very special guest on the show soon while I'm going to start a little series an interview series where I have some special guests come on and tell me their favorite story from history. My special guest for the interview I'll be having for the first little show of that, whatever that I'll figure out to call that, is Virtual History 360. Follow him on Instagram and YouTube. He's got some great content and great um, educational stuff that you can use in classrooms or even for personal use. I do it personally. It's a really great um, YouTube channel and site. So please follow him on Instagram and YouTube. And we'll be seeing more from him or hearing more from him since this is a podcast in a few days. So before we get into the episode, as always, let's take a quick ad break from our sponsors here at Anchor. From the very start of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's term, the taxes set in place for the New Deal were beginning to rack up. Not only that, but the suspension of the gold standard inspired vocal opponents within the highest echelons of industry. Among them was an irate William Randolph Hearst. Hearst was a New York High Society man. He was a businessman, politician, and most well-known for his newspaper publishing. He was also a pioneer of yellow journalism. That is to say, he is the father of fake news. Yellow journalism was a term used for poorly researched articles or articles that were not legitimate or sometimes even fake. While he was elected twice to the House of Representatives as a Democrat, he failed in his other campaigns for New York City mayor, governor, and even president. Hearst filmed a short clip complaining about these taxes that the president was placing on the public. Hearst called them impudent and despotic. Have a listen. My friends, this whole system of income taxation has degenerated into a racket. The sooner this impudent, intrusive, despotic, discriminatory and perhaps revolutionary system of taxation is repealed, the better it will be for the honesty, the industry, the wealth, and the welfare of the It's clear that despite supporting FDR in the run-up to his election as president, 
Hearst quickly became uninterested in the taxes that he and his business were having to pay for the New Deal and to support the New Deal, taxes that would eventually pull the country out of the Great Depression. And that mentality can still be seen in modern-day America. When it comes to this so-called business plot, in the long term, I can say it's quite hard to answer or fathom whether this plot would have succeeded. Unfortunately, I'll add, it is remembered as the business plot and not by its other way cooler names, the White House coup or the Wall Street push. The reason I say that it might not have been successful is that most of the evidence that this thing ever happened is through the words of Major General Smedley Butler, who we'll meet here in a second. So, him being the only source to come out against this plot left some wondering. However, it does leave enough room for this plot to have actually been real and not bogus like some news companies would eventually go on to describe it. Now, I'll say the only reason we truly know about the business plot is because Major General Smedley Butler testified to Congress about it in 1934. Butler was a well-respected military commander and was often called by his colleagues in the military Old Gimlet Eye, the Fighting Quaker, or even the Old Duckboard. But Butler had a talent for rallying supporters to his cause, and he cites that as one of the reasons that he was sought out by this group to lead an army. And he was looked upon as a respected leader because he led a very successful 34-year-long military career. He served in the Philippines, China, Central America, the Caribbean during the Banana Wars, and eventually in France during World War I. In 1934, however, when Butler testified to a small committee in the House of Representatives headed by Representatives John W. Cormack from Massachusetts and Samuel Dickstein from New York. Interestingly, Dickstein was later discovered to be a paid agent of the Soviet Union's own NKVD. And what makes that even funnier is that this committee that he is serving on is the precursor to HWAC, the House Un-American uh, Activities Committee, which would be one of the largest anti-communist movements in the government, as they would later go on to do, like the Hollywood Blacklist, and uh, McCarthy would say that, you know, I know 200 members of the government who are card-holding members of the Communist Party, whatever, you know, not Communist Party, maybe Soviet Union, something like that. Anyways, Butler told this committee that one Gerald P. McGuire had relayed to him that a group of businessmen supposedly backed by a private army of, get this, 500,000 ex-soldiers and others intended to establish a fascist dictatorship. Butler described that he was asked by McGuire, who was a bond salesman, to lead this army. It's important to note that Butler was a supporter of the Bonus Army, and why wouldn't he be? See, after World War I, many of America's soldiers came home in varying forms of disarray. Soldiers were given $60 pay when they came back in 1919, and a train ticket home. While 60 seems like a measly handout, in 1919, 60 bucks actually had the buying power of $814.51 in modern currency. Still, however, despite that handout, veterans had trouble making ends meet, and in 1924, these efforts culminated in the passage of the War Adjusted Compensation Act, 
which promised World War I veterans bonus pay for their lost wages in the form of a bond that would be collectible after 20 years in 1945. This, of course, seemed a reasonable compromise before the stock market crash in 1929. In 1932, at the height of the Depression, a camp of around 15,000 veterans who called themselves the Bonus Army formed outside of Washington, D.C., and officials and politicians began to panic, to say the least. Backed by a few U.S. politicians, the Bonus Army demanded immediate payment of their bond debts to assist their families who were struggling and to overall boost the economy. In total, this would have required more than $2 billion, and that was roughly half the government's budget for the year. While then-President Herbert Hoover was struggling to figure out what to do with the crowd, Smedley Butler, who was now retired, was making his rounds as a public speaker. He told the soldiers that, quote, They may be calling you tramps now, but in 1917, they didn't call you bums. You are the best-behaved group of men in this country today, and I consider it an honor to be asked to speak to you. He continued to add that this gathering was, quote, the greatest demonstration of Americanism that we've ever had, and he urged the soldiers to remain orderly while preserving the country's faith in its veterans. Things seemed to change, however, when Douglas MacArthur and a swath of soldiers rushed into the camp and dispersed the soldiers. Unfortunately for America, things seemed to be going rough for a little while. For a few tense months, democracy hung in the balance, this comes from the author of The Plot Against the President, Sally Denton. She said in an NPR interview that, quote, Though it's hard for us to imagine today, fascism, communism, even Nazism seemed like possible solutions to the country's ills. There were suggestions that capitalism was not working, that even democracy was not working. Anyways, back to Butler and his mysterious banker visitor. According to Smedley Butler, over several visits... This McGuire man, a World War I soldier who became a banker, asked him if he would be interested in taking over the leadership of the American Legion in an upcoming event. After Butler had kindly declined, McGuire offered between three and four hundred soldiers to rush to stage and demand his presence. Butler was, of course, put off by this offer, but he decided to play along to see where it went. He said he wasn't sure what he would say, or how so many struggling veterans were supposed to make their way to Chicago. McGuire answered his organization, the Committee for Sound Currency, had already written him a speech and produced bank statements for over $110,000, which is just under $2 million by today's currency. The speech made a strong push to get the government to revert the repeal of the gold standard. Upon questioning why a soldier's pay had to worry about gold, McGuire answered that he and his companions wanted to make sure that the troops were supported and given real and not, quote, rubber money. He was also told that the speech had been written by John W. Davis, who was 1924's Democratic presidential candidate, former ambassador to the UK, and current legal counsel to the J.P. Morgan and Company. McGuire offered Butler checks from Murphy and another man in Robert S. Clark as a sort of down payment to help get the necessary gang together to stage the coup. Butler actually knew both of these men from back in the Box Rebellion when he was their general. He also knew that Murphy was a multi-millionaire and had been one of the largest backers in the American Legion's founding, fronting around $125,000. So why would one of the Legion's founders want him to overthrow their own leadership? Clark had served under Butler's command during the Box Rebellion and was known as the millionaire lieutenant in the service, this in part to his inheritance of the Singer Sewing Company. Now, in 1933, he was a successful well-to-do financier. 
A little later on, when McGuire ambushed Butler at a hotel in New Jersey, Butler complained that he didn't really believe any financing was going to back this, that it was really just a sham. McGuire's response was moving a wad of nearly $18,000 from his pocket and throwing it towards Butler. The general, now furious, demanded to meet with Clark. To this, McGuire could arrange. A few months down the road, Clark and Butler met up at Smedley's house. After briefly reminiscing about the Boxer Rebellion, Clark went straight down to business. Butler claims that Clark confessed to him that he had around $30 million fortune to his name. Blaming an unstable economy, Clark believed that he had to get rid of some of that cash instead of losing it. And if he had to spend half his money to protect the other half, he was going to do it. See, Roosevelt was on the verge of destroying everything with his inflation and overspending, Clark believed. If Butler gave the speech and took control of the Legion, demand a return to the gold standard, then maybe, just maybe, they could persuade FDR himself and even Congress to do so as well. When he asked Clark how the president himself was to be persuaded, Clark said that was simple. The president swam in the same circles as these conspirators did. And if he agreed to support them, he would have the backing of some very powerful friends, and so would Butler if he would just play along. However, Butler announced that he didn't really like the idea of using soldiers as pawns to undermine the democracy that they had been protecting, fighting, and dying for. Clark then told him to stop being so stubborn and get this offer to pay his mortgage. Now irate, Butler took his guest down to the hall to his study. He entered the room and pointed around, indicating at all the medals and honors he had been awarded from his 34-year-long career. Clark, apparently sobered by this sentiment, asked to use his phone. According to Butler, the only word he had overheard was pamphlets and possibly something called Plan B. Turns out Plan B was dropping thousands of pamphlets from the ceiling of the event that Butler refused to speak at. And these pamphlets, they argued to pay back the bonuses and revert the repeal of gold standard. This apparently worked well enough to persuade the American Legion to adopt that very dogma that the conspirators were hoping Butler would instill among them. However, Butler continued to refuse any payment or proposals by Clark or his men. Then he had not heard from McGuire or Clark until January of 1933, when he started receiving mysterious postcards from all across Europe. But at, over a half a year later, on August 22, 1934, Butler met with McGuire, seated at a secluded table at the back room of this wrote hotel restaurant. McGuire began to suddenly rave about getting soldiers together, but then started talking obsessively about his travels. Butler kept waiting for him to get to the point, but he suddenly realized that there was a message being relayed to him in this nonsensical chat. See, in France, McGuire had met with members of the far-right paramilitary veterans group called the Croix de Feu, or the Cross of Fire. I probably butchered that French. But in Italy, he had studied the structure of Mussolini's government and been enamored by the loyalty, power, and strength of El Duce's black shirts. Finally, he concluded that he had conversed with a few members of the party that was now in command of Germany. He also admitted that he quite liked their ideals. McGuire believed that right now there was no better time to give right-wing authoritarianism a try in America. That's when Butler realized, through all of this talk, that these businessmen wanted Butler to run a fascist military dictatorship in the United States. The general sort of played along and continued to ask questions. He probed how they intended to pull all this off or even pay for it. McGuire explained that the group would be announcing its presence quite publicly in the next few days. 
He wasn't sure which name they'd settle on yet, but between the collaborators, they might have had as much as $300 million to, apparently, quote, protect the Constitution. $300 million is $5 billion in 2019 U.S. currency. Whether Butler agreed or not, McGuire said that once they got in touch with the right members of the American Legion and the veterans of foreign wars, and finally acquired weaponry, that it was truly only a matter of time until their plot was successful. Finally, he asked Butler to think about it, and then left. A little later, when members of the conspiracy, who were also members of a conservative anti-FDR military movement, went public, Butler approached a writer for the Philadelphia Record named French to help him collect evidence. Interestingly, the New York Times reported on these public announcements of these anti-FDR supporters. Their headline was, quote, The brood of anti-New Deal organizations spawned by the Liberty League are in turn spawning fascism. Soon thereafter, Butler approached Congress and testified to the committee of what had happened over the course of the past year with the reporter French at his side with his evidence, or as much as he could gather. When McGuire was brought up, Congress subpoenaed him and he was called to defend himself in a testimony to that committee. He claimed that Butler had made it all up. He said that he went to Europe for leisure and vacation with his family and not to meet with fascists, and that was a crazy idea. Most importantly, he never tried to buy Butler to be part of a coup because no such coup ever existed, so why would he do that? Despite this, when letters which contained McGuire discussing the Cross of Fire's training movements and plans were produced, he had no explanation for why he so closely described and monitored a far-right paramilitary veterans group. Similarly, he had no explanation for $20,000 that went missing from his accounts during that same time frame that Butler claimed he had been offered 18 $1,000 bills. When the court report was published, it had finally concluded that a plot to overthrow the Roosevelt administration and install a fascist government in its place did indeed exist. That is absolutely crazy to think about. That this committee, this Congress, said that this plot existed, but they don't know how far it went. They never determined, however, and really where this went, where it was going. And the investigations into the plot never officially looked into it any further. However, the names of those members of the American Legion that were involved were redacted, and that information ceases to exist, essentially. So looking back, it's a massive what-if, especially since a lot of it is up in the air and speculation. Now, recently, many historians have been coming out and saying that this is something that actually happened, that there's enough evidence to support it that it was true, but I will let you guys make that, you know, make that a decision for yourself to think if this was a bunch of, you know, baloney that Butler had come up with, or if it was true. Uh, most of the evidence points to it being something that definitely happened, especially since this committee said that it was, you know, it was a definite thing that was happening. But this has a growing historical legacy among um, modern historians, and it's getting a lot more attention than it used to, which is cool, and that's that's uh, another thing that's been happening with other things, such as the War of 1812, as I mentioned in a previous episode. So whether this was real or not, I will let you guys decide for yourselves, and you can look into it even if you'd like, because that's what I would encourage. So that was the episode, guys. I hope you enjoyed 
this was a pretty interesting episode for me. I'm sort of familiar with the story. But uh, if you guys like the episode, as I mentioned at the beginning, that I'm going to have some big stuff on the way, some more Gettysburg uh, series. Uh, in my interview with Virtual History 360, where he's going to tell me some of his, uh, or at least a favorite story of history of his, and we'll discuss some things there. Uh, I also have some other ideas for interviews, but I'll also extend this out there. If any of you want to uh, come on the show and tell me one of your favorite stories from history, just go on Instagram and go to at History Smash 1863, no capitals, uh, no spaces, and DM me and I'll get you on the show if you want to. There's that. But also, so thank you guys for listening. Really, just that's about it. And for your continued support of the podcast. And if you want to, please follow this podcast wherever you can and share it with some of your friends who might be interested. Thank you, guys. I'm Joe. This has been History, Inc. Have a good one.